Welcome to Everything Yesterday This Morning, a 15 to 20 minute daily recap of headlines you may have missed. Come for the news, stay for the snarky commentary. Good morning and welcome to Tuesday's edition of Everything Yesterday This Morning. I'm your host, Literally Heather. Um, I got a long one for you today, so I'm going to get started on it. On one side of the U.S. Capitol this week, Mitch McConnell stood before the press and heaped praise on the $1.7 trillion government spending bill, saying it fulfilled all of the party's priorities. Oh, priorities, huh? Priorities like the $410 million for foreign countries to protect their borders? Or what about $4.2 billion for the Patent and Trademark Office? That really helps the American people, doesn't it? We're really conserving the nation with that part of the bill. Oh, I'm sure you mean the $1.14 million you took to renovate the Herbert Hoover Building for the Department of Commerce. Thank goodness you have your priorities in order, Mr. McConnell, or, you know, that $25 million for, quote, necessary expenses of the Community Relations Service for the DOJ. Spin and rhetoric come at such a high cost anymore, I feel like the American taxpayer really got their propaganda for a seal with that $25 million price tag. On the other side, uh, Rand Paul posed before the 4000 and 155 pages of text with multicolored warning signs blaring of hazardous debt that will threaten the country's solvency and security. An abomination, Paul called it, just as McConnell declared he was proud of it. McConnell, however, won out in the face-off that his support for the giant omnibus, which funds the government through next September, got his party to provide 18 votes on top of the Democrats' 50. McConnell argued that the package is a victory, primarily for the increase in defense spending. It includes $45 billion in assistance to Ukraine. Thank goodness we're still the United States of Ukraine. Um, As they continue to try to fight off Russia's 10-month-old invasion, McConnell called Russia's defeat the number one priority for the United States right now, according to most Republicans. How gross is that? The number one priority for the United States right now is another country. And at your, your kids, your great-grandkids' expense. Work hard so we can spend your money elsewhere, comrade. I'm sorry, but I missed the part where we genuinely did become the United States of Ukraine. Last I checked, this is America. And Americans should be your number one priority. We no longer have a representative government. Three busloads of migrants were driven to Washington, D.C. and arrived outside the Naval Observatory, which is the vice president's residence. The migrants were later taken to a church by the Migrant Solidarity Mutual Aid Network, which is a local aid group. Texas Governor Greg Abbott was responsible for Saturday's incident marking the latest episode in a months-long effort by the governor to send migrants to Democratic-run cities. I Be mindful, just because they're Democratic-run, that's not why they're being sent there. They're being sent there because they have been declared 
to be sanctuary cities. As a way to encourage the Biden administration to take steps to control immigration in the United States. In September, Abbott sent two buses full of migrants to Harris's residence in D.C., sparking criticism among Democrats. Other Republican governors, including Florida's Ron DeSantis and Arizona's Doug Ducey, have transported migrants to Democrat-run cities, sanctuary cities, across the country in recent months. Tonight, on Christmas Eve, Governor Abbott's buses dropped off migrants at the VP's house in the freezing cold. The Migrant Solidarity Mutual Aid Network said on Sunday, This is not new. It's been happening for eight months. The White House slammed the move on Sunday, calling it a shameful stunt. Governor Abbott abandoned children on the side of the road in below freezing temperatures on Christmas Eve without coordinating with any federal or local authorities. This was cruel, dangerous, and a shameful stunt, the White House Deputy Press Secretary Abdullah Hassan said in a statement. As we have repeatedly said, we are willing to work with anyone. Republican or Democrat alike, on real solutions, like the comprehensive immigration reform and border security measures President Biden sent to Congress on his first day in office. But these political games accomplish nothing and only put lives in danger, Hassan added. Well, let's be careful now, Abdullah. Who played political games first? The government who refuses to do anything about immigration? The NGOs, enticing them to make the track in the first place. What about the sanctuary cities who advertise, we don't care about any sort of laws, you're free to come here and live your best life. ICE has no authority here. Abbott penned a letter to President Biden last Tuesday demanding that the administration send federal assets to address the situation at the border, especially as temperatures drop and a winter storm approached Texas. You and your administration must stop the lie that the border is secure and instead immediately deploy federal assets to address the dire problems you have caused. You must execute the duties that the U.S. Constitution mandates you perform and secure the southern border before more innocent lives are lost. In a statement Saturday, the Department of Homeland Security said, it continues to fully enforce our immigration and public health laws at the border. Individuals and families attempting to enter without authorization are being expelled, as required by court order under Title 42, or placed into removal proceedings. As temperatures remain dangerously low all along the border, no one should put their lives in the hands of smugglers, or risk life and limb attempting to cross only to be returned. The agency said 23,000 agents and officers are working to secure the southwest border, and the United States government continues to work closely with our partners in Mexico to reinforce coordinated enforcement operations to target human smuggling organizations and bring them to justice. The Supreme Court last Monday temporarily stopped the expiration of Title 42, the Trump-era policy that allows border officials to turn away asylum seekers because of public health concerns. If it does eventually expire, Abbott said the number of individuals entering Texas illegally will only increase. I cannot help but feel that this is all by design. I already mentioned the spending bill that included $410 million 
for Jordan, Lebanon, Egypt, Tunisia, and Oman to defend their borders was a priority for the party. Meanwhile, in the last fiscal year, we have had 2.4 million migrant arrests on our own border. Miss me with your talk of priorities, Mr. McConnell. Vandalism at three power substations in western Washington early Sunday initially cut power to about 14,000 utility customers, the Pierce County Sheriff's Office, Office said. The attacks come as federal officials are warning that the U.S. power grid needs better security to prevent domestic terrorism, and after a large outage in North Carolina earlier this month, it took days to repair. Odd that they have no leads thus far, but are very comfortable calling it domestic terrorism. In January, a U.S. Department of Homeland Security report warned that domestic extremists have been developing credible, specific plans to attack electricity infrastructure since at least 2020. Honestly, everything that has come out about... Or like through the Twitter files about how the DHS operates, I wouldn't be surprised if this was them committing these crimes with the sole purpose of justifying their narrative and the agency itself at this point. Uh, Tacoma Public Utilities reported vandalism at about 5.30 a.m. Sunday at one substation, followed by vandalism at a second substation, the sheriff's office said. The outages affected about 7,300 customers in an area southeast of Tacoma just before noon. The utility had restored power to all but 2,700 customers whose power was estimated to be restored at about 6.30 p.m. on Sunday. Meanwhile, just before noon, Puget Sound Energy reported vandalism that had happened at about 2.30 a.m. Sunday caused a power outage at one of its substations. The nearly 7,700 customers who lost power had it restored by 5 a.m. Puget Sound spokesperson Andrew, Andrew Padula said the company's investigating along with the authorities and declined to comment further. In all three cases, the sheriff's office says someone forced their way into the fenced area surrounding the substations and damaged equipment to cause a power outage. Officials have not said how the substations were damaged, no suspects are in custody, and officials don't know if it was a coordinated attack. In the heavily conservative Western Prairie province of Alberta, Canada, many residents, especially those on the far right, are chafed at the COVID-19 restrictions imposed by the Liberal federal government in Ottawa. The widespread resentment helped fuel the enormous truck blockade this year, the disrupted trade with the United States, and paralyzed Ottawa for a month. Now, oil-rich Alberta has ratcheted up the long-running schism between Western and Eastern Canada by approving a bill allowing the province to ignore any federal laws and regulations it opposes, a move that some critics described as an unconstitutional threat to the basic fabric of the country's government. The leader of Alberta's provincial government, Danielle Smith, justified her support for the bill by saying, it's not like Ottawa is a national government, a conclusion that is widely disputed by constitutional experts. Ms. Smith, 
who is the leader of Alberta's United Conservative Party and the premier of the province, added, The way our country works is that we are a federation of sovereign independent jurisdictions. The new law is the latest development reflecting an informal, far-right effort in western Canadian provinces, mainly Alberta, to secede from Canada, underscoring just how difficult it can be for Ottawa to govern the regionally divided provinces. Holding views considered extreme even among Canadian Conservatives, Ms. Smith has opposed all pandemic measures, including vaccines and masks. Her government has suggested that Alberta's law could be used to reject federal authority and laws in several areas, including public health, the environment, and firearms. Critics, however, say the law is constitutional overreach by the province that is unlikely to survive a court challenge. They also say that the legislation will create uncertainty that may cause investors to shy away from Alberta and could jeopardize Indigenous peoples' rights and treaty obligations. Many Albertans have argued that Ottawa has exploited the wealth generated by the province's lucrative energy industry for the benefit of other provinces, while dismissing pressing needs in Alberta, including increased funds for health care. The overwhelming majority of Alberta's energy is exported, and the province is the largest source of imported oil for the United States. They view Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's ambitious program to move away from fossil fuels to combat climate change as a threat to their vital industry and his progressive government as out of touch with Albertans on many issues, particularly gun control. In introducing the proposed law, Ms. Smith said, I hope that we've sent a message to Ottawa that we will vigorously defend our constitutional areas of jurisdiction and they should just butt out. But political scientists and analysts said the law is less about constitutional jurisdiction than it is about attracting the secessionist and anti-vaccination movements by tapping into a strain of anger and disenchantment towards the federal government and towards Mr. Trudeau in particular. This is coming from a deep-seated anger at the federal government and Justin Trudeau, said Dwayne Bratt, a professor of political science at Mount Royal University in Calgary. She clearly wants to fight with Trudeau. Mr. Trudeau, for his part, does not seem interested in taking the bait. While the federal government has the power to override the law or take it directly to Canada's Supreme Court for a constitutional review, there is no sign that he plans to pursue either of those moves. While provinces historically have a little room in Canada's system on how they enforce and follow federal legislation, Alberta now takes two huge steps forward to say that the existence of flexible federalism is a grounds for the province to refuse, in a direct and frontal way, the applications of federal law. Uh, It always amazes me when Canada is more driven to say fuck you to the federal government than the states here in America. It's just disappointing we don't have more people with some backbone in state governments. Yesterday, another Twitter files dropped, this one dealing specifically with how the United States government expected Twitter and other social media platforms to deal with misinformation surrounding COVID. During the COVID-19 pandemic, legacy media had shown itself to largely operate 
as a messaging platform for our public health institutions like the CDC and NIH. Those institutions operated in near total lockstep, in part by purging internal dissidents and discrediting outside experts. Twitter became an essential alternative. It was a place where those with public health expertise, like epidemiologists, internists, pediatricians, etc., and perspectives that were at odds with official policy could air their views, and where curious citizens could find such information and observe the debate. This often included other countries' responses to COVID that differed dramatically from our own. Think Sweden, for example. But it quickly became clear that Twitter also seemed to promote content that reinforced the establishment narrative and to suppress views and even scientific evidence that ran to the contrary. The United States government pressured Twitter to elevate certain content and suppress other content about COVID-19 and the pandemic. Internal emails that David Zweig viewed at Twitter show that both the Trump and Biden administrations directly pressured Twitter executives to moderate the platform's content according to their wishes. At the onset of the pandemic, the Trump administration was especially concerned about panic buying and sought help from the tech companies to combat misinformation, according to emails sent by Twitter employees in the wake of meetings with the White House. One area of so-called misinformation are runs on grocery stores. The trouble is, it wasn't misinformation. There actually were runs on goods. Think toilet paper. And it wasn't just Twitter. The meetings with the Trump Trump White House were also attended by Google, Facebook, Microsoft, and others. When the Biden administration took over, its agenda for the American people can be summed up as be afraid of COVID, be very afraid, Do exactly what we say to stay safe. In July of 2021, at that time, the Surgeon General was Vivek Murthy. There was a 22-page advisory released concerning what the World Health Organization referred to as an infodemic and called on social media platforms to do more to shut down misinformation. By the summer of 2021, the day after uh, Murthy's memo, Biden announced publicly that social media companies were, quote, killing people by allowing misinformation about vaccines. Just hours later, Twitter locked Berenson out of his account and then permanently suspended him the next month. Berenson sued Twitter and ultimately settled with the company as now back on the platform. As part of the lawsuit, Twitter was compelled to provide certain internal communications. They revealed that the White House had directly met with Twitter employees and pressured them to take action on Brenson. Pausing for dramatic effect here, the U.S. government actively pressured a social media platform to silence a citizen solely based on the fact that he didn't agree with the pre-approved narrative, which is a blatant in-your-face violation of the First Amendment. Lauren Culbertson, who was Twitter's head of U.S. public policy, summarized her meetings with the Biden White House and said, the Biden team was not satisfied with Twitter's enforcement approach as they wanted Twitter to do more and to de-platform several accounts. Because of this dissatisfaction, we have now been asked to join several other calls. They were very angry in nature. But 
Twitter did suppress views, and not just those of journalists like Berenson. Many medical and public health professionals who expressed perspectives and even cited findings from accredited academic journals that conflicted with official positions were also targeted. As a result, legitimate findings and questions about our COVID policies and their consequences went unheard to disappear. In his coverage, David sums up three serious problems with Twitter's process. First, much of the content moderation on COVID was conducted by bots trained on machine learning and AI, as well as foreign contractors. Initially, those bots were fed information and told what to look for, but their searches became more refined over time, owed to manual updates and scanning the platform. Second, as I stated, contractors operating outside of the country in places like the Philippines were also moderating content, tasking non-experts to adjudicate tweets on complex topics like myocarditis and mask efficacy data was destined for a significant error rate. And finally, the onerous falls on the shoulders of the higher-ups at Twitter. They chose the inputs for the bots. They determined the suspensions, which created an individual as well as a collective bias. If you dissented, you were labeled as misinformation, even if your information was factual, as was the case with Martin Kaldorf. He's an epidemiologist at Harvard Medical School. There were numerous instances of tweets about vaccines and pandemic policies labeled as misleading or taken down entirely, sometimes triggering account suspensions simply because they veered from the CDC guidance or differed from establishment views. Andrew Boston, who is a Rhode Island physician, was permanently suspended from Twitter after receiving multiple strikes for, quote, misinformation. One of his strikes was for a tweet referencing the results from a peer-reviewed study that found a deterioration in sperm concentration and total motile count in sperm donors following mRNA vaccination. But, alas, Twitter's logs revealed that an internal audit conducted by Twitter after Boston's attorney contacted the company found that only one of Boston's five violations were valid. The one Boston tweet that was still found to be in violation of Twitter policy, you ask? Well, he cited data and drew a conclusion that was totally legitimate. Problem was, it was inconvenient to the public health establishment's narrative about the relative risks of flu versus COVID in children. Throughout the pandemic, Twitter repeatedly propped up the official government line that prioritizing mitigation over other concerns was the best approach to the pandemic. Information that challenged that view, for example, that pointed out the low-risk children faced from the virus, or that raised questions about vaccine safety or effectiveness, was subject to moderation and suppression. In addition to being a story of the incestuous nature of big tech and the legacy press allowing the U.S. government to shape our debate, It is also the story of children who were prevented from attending school and being conditioned to be afraid to play with their friends. It's the story of people who were not permitted to see their loved ones and instead died alone, saying their last words on a Skype or Zoom call. 
It's the story of your favorite restaurant down the street or that small business in your hometown being forced to close its doors. It's even the story of people who are still, to this day, too scared to drive alone in their cars without a mask on their faces. If social media platforms, including Twitter, had proceeded with allowing dialogue and discourse on this subject, would any of this have turned out differently? That is your Tuesday edition of Everything Yesterday This Morning. I love you guys. I hope you had a great Merry Christmas with your family, and I hope you have a great week. I will see you tomorrow. If you like today's show, be sure to subscribe and turn on notifications so you never miss an episode. Also, please don't forget to check out shouseinthehouse.com and never forget that free men do not need permission from any government. Have a great day.